Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And the Hilo turns two this week. I love that. The terrible twos. Does it feel <laughs> like a toddler? It's so funny because ironically for the last not few behave months, like a toddler. I feel like it's finally not being a toddler. I feel like for so long it was a toddler and now it's sort of I think looking that- after itself. <laughs> <laughs> I think the podcast is like I think podcast years are like dog years though. Yes, I agree. And so actually the Hilo's just turned fourteen. Ooh, again though, slightly tricky age. What age would we like the Hilo to be? Thirty seven maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thirty seven year old podcast baby, fine. <laughs> And you've been in Scotland. Have you fallen in love with the local cuisine and decided to move there as you do with everywhere you go with the Everything I Know About Love tour? Um, I had a wonderful time in Scotland. I was in Edinburgh and Glasgow, ate some vegetarian-approved haggis crisps. Um, It was, yeah, it was lovely. I had a really good time. It was the first time, actually, because Lauren and I are feeling a little bit like we've fatigued. A little bit. On the train up to Edinburgh. Lauren was like, do you know, maybe this time we shouldn't do the whole, like, immersive, like, put on a tam shanter and a kilt and do a jig down the Royal Mile while drinking whiskey from the bottle and eating a haggis. She was like, maybe we should just be a bit more <laughs> measured. <laughs> because it seems like that's sort of increasingly tiring us out. You're so like um, tourists. Exactly, I know, I know. So, uh, no, we decided we decided to, to be a little more measured, but we still had a wonderful time. And I had one of the best days of my professional life last week, which was the long list meeting for the Women's Prize for Fiction, for which I'm a judge this week. Where so exciting. It was so exciting. And I kept thinking about you because it was like your dream day where we just analysed 170 books for five hours. It was so fun. I want to go. I know. It was great. I can't wait for the long list to be uh, announced so I can... Um, so I can talk to you about all the books. So literally, sworn to secrecy at the moment. Dolly has been. Obviously, people tell us we read quite a lot anyway. But Dolly has been binging. Yeah. Like no one has ever seen trying to get through these mountains <laughs> had of books. forty books. Yeah. But it was Amazing. a great pleasure. It was like you know, creme de la creme, women's fiction of the year. So it was a great pleasure but yeah i can't wait for that long list to be announced what's been happening this week panda well since we last convened i've discovered a flat white with oat milk oh i'm an oat milk convert because i was really resistant to the (laughs) oat milk because everyone's being such pills about milk these days Mm. so i but it's kind of delicious and creamy isn't it yeah i I thought you were all just being such arses really (laughs) Um, no it's actually yummy it's really good it's really good so yeah this has uh, oat milk in it and a very nice listener named Becca sent us some co-op salt and vinegar crisps, almost flattened by their postal journey, but thankfully still edible. I've eaten half already. Would you like the other half? 
I have to say uh, thank you very much to the co-op who I believe very... you've taken your own delivery of crisps by the <laughs> box that you turned up with. generously sent me a whole box and it was it was really lovely what a treat and they really are the best crisps of all time can but I don't think gums? I can ever eat another fucking crisp <laughs> again and I turned up having consumed half of this box I turned up with this like almost frightened look in my eye I would say Pandora she was literally dragging this box <laughs> behind her and I was like Pandora you've got to take them I was like you've got to take I can't have them in the house anymore you've got to take the rest of these crisps and also that everything I know about Love Live Tour um, I'm now being presented with crisps as these offerings but Dolly you have no one to blame but yourself because you go so full on I in know. I full get, on in I get too full on why can't I be moderate with anything? But I was had five packets. Dolly, if you of were moderate with crisps. anything, then everything I know about love would have ended on about page one and a half. <laughs> exactly. Moderation is not the key ingredient no. to your success. Anyway, I will, I will have, uh, I will rekindle my romance for crisps um, in the near future. But for now, honestly, I never thought I'd say this. I've just had enough crisps. I think you're only sworn off for today. Don't no, so perhaps ridiculous. it's just today. Everyone's been going into squeamish meltdown over the rediscovery of the world's largest bee. Have you seen this bee? No. Oh, it's the size of an adult thumb. It's quite revolting. R. Kelly has at last appeared in court in Chicago, charged with 10 counts of aggravated sexual abuse, including three victims between the age of 13 and 16. Prominent photographer Nan Golden has threatened to pull out of her retrospective at the National Portrait Gallery if the gallery accepts a £1 million donation from the Sackler family, who own Purdue, which controversially distributed OxyContin in the 80s, which led to an opioid addiction, e.g., hooked people on heroin. Having read Beth Macy's Dope Sick, all about this, which I talked about on the high-low, I think probably four or five months ago, I think, fair play to Nan, it's actually really disgusting how many venerated institutions accept donations from the Sacklers, mm. who are a multi-billionaire family, um, and they refused to pull the drug even when they knew how highly addictive it was. And it has been the biggest reason that so many people are addicted to heroin in the States and beyond. Saudi Arabia, the country that finally let women drive last year, has come under fire for a government-backed app called Absha, launched in 2015, which allows men to track their female dependents. A man gets a text every time his wife or daughter presents her passport at the border. So it's like, it's this sort of app. It's almost like, you know, when you log on to like HMRC or something, and there's all these different like gateways, as Mm. they call them. It's sort of like that as an app. And so it's almost like, that's just a part of the many things you'd need to do, like renewing your driving licence or checking your tax details. In good news, secondary school pupils are to learn about the physical and psychological dangers of FGM as part of a shake-up on sex education in the national curriculum. Pupils will also learn about grooming, forced marriage and domestic abuse. Earlier this month, the mother of a three-year-old girl became the first person to be found guilty of FGM in the UK. Isn't that brilliant? Mm, that they can learn about it at school? It's really, really encouraging. I think it just takes in, it's what it is, as what you'd hope the curriculum and indeed society is slowly getting there to do, is it's just rethinking all of those sort of cultural mores that only really include middle-class white girls Mm. or middle-class white boys. So... FGM and forced marriage is a reality for many people living in Britain, but it's just not something that we have been educated on. And it's just a much more inclusive 
curriculum and from what i know from what she's told me of the work that they've done consent and the nature of consent is something that's going to be explored much more thoroughly on the curriculum which i think is obviously brilliant and so so needed absolutely i mean if we know more than anything surely it's things start at a grassroots level exactly it is about education this is what completely about over and over again almost everything i realize as i get older Mm. is about education and money. We are recording early Monday morning, so we are fresh off the back of Oscars coverage. God, it's nice to wake up to Oscar winner updates uh, from America rather than waking up to an election result <laughs> or referendum news. You know that feeling when you go to bed and you're like, oh, I can't wait for the morning to find out. It's the first time in years I've actually been really happy. Um, uh, my favourite moment from the Oscars, as I'm sure it will be the favourite f- moment for everyone, was Olivia Coleman's acceptance speech. Have you watched it? The Raspberry. When oh. <laughs> just, it's so amazing. She's like, this is hilarious. This is terrifying. But and then she, there's the Raspberry. Yeah. She is so overwhelmed with emotion and it's so unaffected. You can, I just, mm. I, it's, because with actors, you so often watch a speech and you're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> nice, but another nice performance, love. But this, this woman, you can just see, it's how anyone I know would have reacted if that happened to them. It just shows what a truly kind of down to earth and, unflappable and unaffected by Hollywood person she is I think it was just so lovely to see she was just so bowled over someone tweeted which I think was quite funny you know everyone excitedly congratulating Olivia Coleman he was like can you at least spell her name right how do you spell it doesn't have an e in it no does it not no I learned from the David Tennant podcast that they uh, everyone calls her Collie Really? Slightly nauseating, I have to say, because they were calling each other DT and Collie. <laughs> and it was a little bit lovely. Quite thespy. Little bit of thespy, even for me. Oh my God, the latest one. I should probably flag up. David Tennant has this podcast and he's got these really brilliant guests. The Whoopi Goldberg one is particularly Yeah, fantastic. I think David Tennant's podcast is um, challenging the highlight a little bit. <laughs> I know, it is. It's so great. But the Ian McKellen one, which I listened to last week, had shades of... How do I act so well? What I do is I pretend to be the part I'm playing. Have you seen that, you know, on extras? Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Because he's talking about acting. (laughs) It really does stray into that territory. Anyways, um, Olivia Coleman, yeah, that just made my heart sing. I loved it. And Lady Gaga? I, d- I I was told it was a very moving performance. I have to say, it looked all a little bit breathy to me. Do you know what I mean? At the end, when Bradley Cooper and her were sharing that mic, they were so close together. Imagine the breath. <laughs> That's what you mean by breath. Yeah, no, it was just too much. It just made me feel a bit claustrophobic. I think there's... No two people's faces should be that close to each other unless engaging in intercourse, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. And even during intercourse, you shouldn't really Perhaps. be that close oh, at God, all. Oh, God, this is going very Joan and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Theresa May tweeted Olivia Coleman a congratulation. Did she? Did she should print out and frame that. Green Book won Best Picture. Desperate to see that. And Rami Malek won an Oscar for his role as Freddie Mercury and apparently later fell off the stage and was attended to by paramedics, but somehow it hasn't made it into any of the coverage. Someone really? Said. Was, was it booze-fueled? I don't know. I'm, or maybe just general overexcitement. The <laughs> Telegraph is incredibly bitchy about him winning an Oscar and called it the most embarrassing winner in years, which is just such an unnecessary Why are people headline. being so snooty about that damn film? I know. It's, it, it, I, I have no idea. And Roma won three awards for cinematography, best director and best foreign language film which I am very happy about and if you haven't watched it yet it's free on Netflix so go watch it I think a lot of people thought it would win movie of the year 
I wonder if that's because of its distribution, because it's Netflix. Do you think maybe? I wonder if there's an element of the Academy feeling like um, the public have got a little bit too much power yes nowadays. that's what i mean and then uh, yeah and netflix is so democratic but that said rami malik wouldn't have won the oscar then because critics do you remember were getting really annoyed that the public were having too much of a say mm. in the success of the, the thing is with bohemian rhapsody is i've told you my theory before about there's a very specific type of film that does very well at the oscars and it's always a film that a mum would describe as a tour de force <laughs> Like yeah. one man's struggle to get to a point of success. Like so many of yeah, them followed that. Force, like yeah. the um the Stephen Hawking's film. Yeah. Eddie Redmayne. The King's Speech. They all follow the Tour de Force template, which is quite quite mummish. Mum Tour de Force. That's amazing. Since recording last week, Shamima Begum faces being stripped of her British citizenship by Home Secretary Sajid Javid. She has since said she regrets speaking with the British media. In an interview with the Sunday Telegraph, Shamima said, They are making an example of me. I regret speaking to the media. I wish I'd stayed low and found a different way to contact my family. Many have accused Sajid Javid of a reactionary populist move. Others have been quick to point out how unfair this decision is, given that 400 Britons have returned to the UK from the Middle East having fought with groups such as ISIS. 400? God, I had no idea it was that many. So if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that Dolly and I recorded it and then about four hours later, this decision, which they haven't got any further from since they announced it, was made after that. So I had to record a little author's note, which was then at the top of last week's episode. I think he'll backtrack. What do you think? I think it's a shameful decision. I think it's totally abdicating our responsibility and I think... We have totally forgotten that this is a woman who was radicalised in this country. Yes, I think that's what a lot of people have said, that this was through her community in Britain. So to try and dispose of her in Bangladesh, where she's never lived and there's really nothing to do with anything. It's appalling. We got lots of thoughts on Shamima and the ongoing question of her citizenship in the mailbag this week. Thank you for your commentary on the Shamima Begum debate in this week's episode. As a British woman of Pakistani heritage, I have been following the story with particular interest and sadness. There is a huge problem with Islamophobia in Britain, evidenced by the Islamophobic rhetoric in much of the press surrounding Shamima Begum. In such a climate, many Muslims seek solace in their faith. I have watched my own grandmother go from being a moderate Muslim who used to take us to the cinema in a pair of jeans to a hijabi who rarely leaves her house. We need to take responsibility for creating a hostile environment which has isolated British Muslims and driven them to extremes. I think that's really important that we consider that during these polarising times. Interesting emails as well about the male genius trope off the back of Laura Snapes' article and interview with us. The 1975 quoted Laura's piece when they accepted their Brit Award. I was so proud of her. Must be what an amazing a moment. moment for her. Very, yeah. very well deserved. And the messages also touched on a number of other timely topics, one of which is A Star is Born. When I watched the film, I disliked it for wheeling out the same old narrative that if a talented man is struggling with addiction and being emotionally abusive towards his partner, then it is excused because of his ability to create amazing music wrote one listener. The A Star Is Born storyline remains unchanged since its first appearance in the 30s. I found it astonishing that so many people responded to the film so positively in 2018, even though it depicts a powerful man discovering a young female talent, nurturing it to bolster his own diminishing career, and then ultimately condemning her when her career starts to overshadow his. 
definitely haven't thought of that. Really I know, the film, so thank you for shining that light a little bit on it. And another man that the messages touch on is the death of 85-year-old fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld, which prompted a slew of Insta tributes and obituaries. My phone was literally full of them. I have to say, I found that really interesting. He was an incredibly talented man, perhaps one of very few geniuses. And anyone who says he isn't, I would say read up on your fashion history, because that really isn't hyperbole. He was capable of very funny observations, but he also caused a lot of offence with some of the um, problematic things that he said. For example, during Me Too, if you don't want your pants pulled about, don't become a model, join a nunnery. One Hilo listener wrote to us, you couldn't swing a Fendi purse without seeing a tribute post to the designer on Instagram with little reference to his more controversial comments, with exception of Jamila Jamil, who called him a ruthless misogynist. It seems to me like there's a little bit of an elephant in the room. It seems similar to Dolly's question of what to do with these male misogynists' work after we find out they've committed unforgivable acts. Although in this case, we've known about Carl's beliefs for years and let the beauty of his work outshine our disgust for them as snape said in her piece the concept of male genius insulates against all manner of sin thank you very much the person who wrote in with that we've got very clever listeners haven't we we've got very clever listeners and of course there's a third man to mention michael jackson there's a two-part documentary coming in a few weeks called leaving neverland where two men share their stories of child sex abuse i was reading an interview with the documentary maker dan reed in the sunday times this weekend And he said he'd received so many vile emails from fans who hadn't seen the documentary. And he said it really pissed him off. He said he's not trying to take down a pop culture icon, but tell a story about sexual abuse that needed to be told. So I'm very interested and will definitely be watching that. These messages reminded me of the most recent episode of The Week Unwrapped, a podcast that I adore um, made by The Week magazine. I listened to it yesterday there's a really eloquent and interesting segment Dolly I think you'd really enjoy it on the idea of art becoming rewritten it was hooked off the slightly mad fact that a fan has raised thousands of dollars to remake the end of Martin Scorsese's film Departed because he wants to remove the rat as it's too on the nose so it's the idea of a city crawling with metaphorical Mm. rats and there's Mm. like a giant rat and he thinks it's a disservice to the film so he wants to take out the rat burn it onto Blu-ray for other discontented fans to enjoy. He's raised £4,000. And as the journalist Various discussed on the podcast, where does it stop? If all art can be memed, i.e. problematic parts, where the people or storylines can just be erased and overlaid with new meaning, will the original even exist in years to come? Or will the latest copy, even if not made by, say, Scorsese, be the only tangible thing that's left? And are we going to get to the point, this made me laugh, of erasing Rolf Harris out of Animal Hospital so that the koala or the wallaby is just hanging midair? <laughs> they also said, and I think this is something I agree with, instead of seeking to remove problematic things everywhere we go, let's seek to learn more about context. For example, removing the cigarettes from Greece. You know, it was filmed during a time when everyone smoked and removing all of those, digitally removing all the cigarettes just makes their mouths apparently hang most of the time. Um, I think it's really dangerous. I think it is the opposite of democracy. But imagine if everyone else could just rewrite everything I know about love so that it's the storyline, so that they can create from your art the art that they want to consume. It's just further insulating us in a bubble of our own making. Totally, and also, like, I know this is going to make me sound like a retired colonel complaining about snowflakes, which I really, really do not want to sound like. My father-in-law's one of those. Don't you be so rude. (laughs) But we are all more equipped than we think to deal with the realities of the past. It drives me insane. As you said, 
educate yourself on the context. And if it's something that you find so triggering, upsetting, which I totally understand, I totally understand, don't go and engage with that. that art. You cannot rewrite history. It's anti-democratic. It's hysterical. It's ignorant. It's foolish. I think it's quite easy to avoid animal hospital now, actually. It's very easy to avoid animal hospital. And also, actually, as we've said In fact, before... I don't know if I'd be able to find animal hospital. <laughs> um, as we've said before, you know, I'm rather cruelly mocking this man and his bloody Blu-ray DVD with the new ending of Monster film. But if you want to offer up alternatives to the original story i totally understand that's fine like when we talk about the fact that carmen in an opera house in italy the ending of it was rewritten so it wasn't a story about violence against women i think that's wonderful that it's offering up a different story but you cannot rewrite the original carmen you can't do it it's the stuff of dystopian future hell like nightmares the idea that things are just going to be scratched from the record it really scares me True progression can't happen and we cannot live in a truly progressive and liberal society, civilised society, unless we are truly aware of the oppression and pain that we've been through. And I actually don't think that the rat in that film has got any kind of oppression or pain. He just thought it was too on the nose. Sammy, that's just more sort of he said, snobbery. I said, yeah, he said, I didn't think this great film deserved such a cheesy ending. So that's a whole... I know. That's a whole different As you thing. said, though, I mean, I dread to think of the girls that might read everything I know about love and think, God, this book's a little bit too on the nose. I think I'm going to change it. All these recipes, she's better than that. In fact, actually, if you could change it... Um, to wellness. Wellness If you could change it to something woker and uh, better written and less on the nose, I would really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, what have you been enjoying this week, Panda? So I've got a surprise for you uh, this week, Dolly. Cindy Buxton, who is my aunt... Um, and she was a wildlife filmmaker and photographer. Oh, yeah. In 1982, Cindy and her colleague Annie Price were caught up in the Falklands War after Argentine forces seized the island of South Georgia, where they had been filming, and they were trapped there for four weeks until they were rescued by um, a helicopter, and it was a big story at the time. It was, you know, all over the news. And this is your auntie? This is my auntie. And in 1983, I have only just found out, because no one tells me anything in my family... Annie and Cindy did a Desert Island Discs. Oh my god. With Roy Plomley, and I've got it here to play for. Panda, this is so cool! On our Desert Island this week are two ladies who are quite accustomed to being on one. They form a team of wildlife photographers, and they became news when they inadvertently became mixed up in the Falklands hostilities. Here are Cindy Buxton and Annie Price. Now, you have four discs each, or four cassettes, if they're more convenient. Do you ordinarily take music in isolation, Cindy? Yes, we do. Yes, we always take, I should think, at least a couple of dozen cassettes with us. We've got just a very small uh, sort of tape recorder, uh, mm-hmm. purely for convenience, size and weight and everything. So but you know from experience what lasts longest and, and sounds best? That's right, yes, we do. Do you have roughly similar tastes, or...? Do you have to go to opposite ends of the island to play your record? Well, luckily, on the whole, we've got similar tastes, but there are one or two occasions where I will tend to walk off and go and have a chat with the penguins rather than listen to the record that Annie wants to play at the time. This will be revealed. (laughs) That is so amazing. I would be so honoured and so excited if I knew that 
my fam, one of my family members and their story and their life has been immortalised on Desert Island Discs. And Roy Plomley as well. That's the creator of Desert Island Discs. Roy, I mean, just the voices, the broadcasting voices on <laughs> a yeah. couple of ladies who made the news. <laughs> but it is just across the board the way that people spoke in broadcasting. I know. My publisher, Julia Annan, her father had an episode of Desert Island Discs that I listened to and I loved. And afterwards, when I was talking to her about it, the thing that you notice is just this register of speaking. It's just this kind of level of formality of broadcasting house voice. It's absolutely How magic. I'm going to go listen to the whole episode. Do. I'll send... I can send it to you. Oh, my God, you're going to go right into the 80s now, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I've already done them, mate. Don't worry, tits deep in them. (laughs) Um, I just finished Elizabeth Gilbert's new novel, City of Girls. Oh, I'm about to start that. It's there. So it's. I've been reading a proof. It comes out in June of this year. I thoroughly enjoyed it. About a woman coming of age amidst the showgirls in sort of New York theatre land of the 1940s. Oh, I love that. Um, I haven't really read something like this before. It's incredibly interesting because the protagonist is very sexually emancipated, and mm. it's about moving through that world at a time where women weren't meant to sleep with lots of men, and. Um, I'd be really interested to see what you think. I found it really readable. It's not the kind of thing I normally read. Because you don't normally read sort of nostalgia. Yeah, totally. And I'd only ever read Eat, Pray, Love, so I didn't really know what her writing as a novelist was like. I haven't read her fiction, yeah. Because she's written some before Eat, Pray, Love, didn't she? I think so. Well, I'd be really interested to see um, what you think about it. I think my mum will really enjoy it, actually, because my mum was born in 1947. So as someone that was a child in the 50s... um, there's quite a lot about that changing time. So I think it's always interesting. Like, I find it really interesting to read about the late 80s and the early 90s because even though I was alive, I was obviously not really compassmentous about the shifting yeah. cultural dynamics. I mean, I was, you know, very ahead of my time, but still, even age four, I wasn't quite up to, <laughs> up to date. I have also been watching Lorena on Amazon Prime. Have you heard of this? No. Four-part docuseries produced by Jordan Peele, um, who made Get Out, about Lorena Bobbitt, who cut off her husband's penis, aged 22, in 1993. I knew the story in the same way that, I, you know, what was I, like, six, grew up with Monica Lewinsky and O.J. Simpson, just as those, you know, those pop culture punchlines where you knew, like, a tiny bit of the story. And did you know at all about it? Never about... heard of it. So I just... I just had no idea about, you know, the fact that there could be any more to that story. I knew that John Wayne Bobbitt went on to be a porn star once they'd sewed his penis back on again. But basically, yeah, she had been grossly abused um, domestically and sexually. And there are so many troubling threads to her story. Um, misogyny, uh, xenophobia. She was from Ecuador and the hot fiery Latino stereotype was perpetuated as much as the scorned woman. So her husband John Wayne claimed that he had finished sexually speaking and she had not so she got cross and cut off his dick so the kind of hot fiery Latino um, thing that the scorned woman all of that was what made you know the media and had dozens of comedians making jokes about her and it was that normalization of abuse and the threat of um, deportation that kept her from speaking out after the years of rape at her husband's hands um so it was really interesting watching this and again just any time something from 90s is culturally 
not rewritten, but the O.J. Simpson series did that as well. Mm. You know, I just learned so much more about, um, or recently learning more about Monica Lewinsky. Hey, and basically the, learning the comp- like the the layers and layers of complexity, but also how it wouldn't happen now. Yeah, and that you know that fine that be that as it may like it wouldn't happen to Lorena now but it's a kind of exoneration mm. for her 20 years later although there is a bit where they show the dismembered and bloodied penis Jesus Christ and Ollie was eating his Chinese and I have <laughs> never seen a man in such like physical pain as that precise well, I don't moment know if I, I don't know if I want to see that but I think revisiting all those layers is so important particularly when you think about those 80s and 90s moments as you say they almost become especially to a generation who inherits them from the, their parents speaking or watching it on the TV it just becomes a minimised jokey shorthand for things that are like very important and complex issues and stories and I'm kind of obsessed with that time I felt like it was there was a, just a big period of, I suppose it was after the baby boomers and there was this big period of kind of modernisation in that time, wasn't there? And it's the time when sort of Hollywood started to become like a thing, like Vanity Fair, you know, Tina Tina Brown going and editing Vanity Fair and celeb- celebrification became a thing. I don't know, it's just really interesting to look back at that early time and see how different it was and how much it um, informed the way that, you know, I digested digested Lorena Bobbitt as the guy that called her husband's dick, you know, mm, nothing, mm. nothing more than that. And also, um, John Wayne Bobbitt still sends love letters to Lorena, which I just found out, which is absolutely extraordinary. He said to her that they should get back together because, you know, think of all the money they can make. Oh, God. <laughs> like keeping up the Kardashians. The last thing I really adored this week is David Remnick on um, TBD. Oh, I'm desperate to listen to that. So many interesting things to say about publishing. And it's also just a joy to listen to a conversation between them both because they're very... They're both so smart and so funny and, and so very arch. respectful, I think, of each other's tenures. Really respectful. I think clearly really adore each other, yeah. if not personally, then definitely professionally. And they're both graceful. Um, the way the way that they talk about people and things is just with grace. And um, I have just got a new subscription to the New Yorker. Dolly kindly bought me one. And then that lapsed because it's an expensive uh, prescription should be subscription (laughs) and so I've just got my new one started and I'm excited to I still read it online they're great about putting a lot of their content online yeah I'm excited to actually get the magazine back in my hands so yeah David Remnick is always interesting to listen to on um, publishing in the media and so is Tina Brown so together you'll really enjoy it I could listen to David Remnick talk forever he also did a brilliant episode of here's the thing with Alec Baldwin and the long form podcast. So if you listen to TBD and you like him, there's so many brilliant interviews. He does with do him the podcast, podcast rounds, doesn't he? Yeah, which he, I think is like, he likes the audience. He's kind of the busiest man, famously in publishing. So I think it's a very generous thing to be able to still make time to like impart his wisdom and insight on things when he must just be knackered all the time. So yeah, I could listen to him talk forever. I can't wait to listen to TBD. What have you been enjoying this week, Dom? I listened to such a good podcast interview and I know this is going to be controversial and both the figures are controversial in their own ways. Joe Rogan. What on earth? And Johan Hari. Did you finally just think, I've got to listen to this Joe Rogan? I was actually texting CJ all weekend about Joe Rogan because there's this very funny trope on the high-low that... Whenever Pandora and I bring up Joe Rogan, it's normally in a sort of vaguely disparaging way because he totally dominates the podcast charts. So his image is so abrasive. He's like this sort of 
I think CJ's going to get very upset by me saying this. I think he's sort of this quite oafish man who, I don't know how, has managed to totally dominate the interviewing podcast sphere. Charlie, for some reason... Who's the new Mark Maron? Charlie gets very... Well, he's been around for ages and ages and ages. I think he just doesn't have as much of a, as much of a name here as he does in America. In America, he's enormous. But Charlie, for some reason gets so worried whenever we bring up Joe Rogan in a slightly negative way. It's like Joe Rogan's got something on him. I think CJ is um, aspirational in the sort of Paris Hilton kind of way and he hopes one day to He will be that. producing. Yeah. I think that it's exactly that. We're just, we're just a stepping stone, Dolly. He gets... But it, I'm fascinated by his nervousness around Joe Rogan. He says it's because he's, he's aware of Joe Rogan's physical strength. And so he doesn't want us to be calling him out anyway. Anyway, so you listened to Joe Rogan. So Johan Hari on Joe Rogan. Johan Hari on Joe Rogan. Yeah, so Johan Hari is a controversial figure in journalism. He... I can remember when all that... Yeah. He was accused of uh, plagiarism. (laughs) Yeah. About... It must have been... It was when I was training to be a journalist. Because I remember it was all we talked about. Yeah. And he has since... um, repented for his sins i think he went and did a course at columbia university or something um to go and he has you know gone on record to apologize and i know that a lot of people are still very angry with the fact that he's being published and that magazines and papers are printing him um i don't really know what i have to say about that but what i would say is he's written these two books called chasing the scream which is about the war on drugs and Lost Connections, which is about anxiety and depression, and a kind of unpicking the worthiness of Johan Hari, whether he should be allowed to share his thoughts. I'm not so interested in that side of things. I'm much more interested in the research that he has done, rigorous research that he has done into these two topics, which um, I have found fascinating. And this conversation that he has with Joe Rogan is about like nearing on three hours long. And it was some of the most... I mean, I'm definitely, definitely going to re-listen to it. It's some of the most fascinating research on the human psyche that I've ever heard. He talks about how his research into addiction and the nature of addiction, what he has found is the opposite of addiction, he says, is connection. And he talks about this fascinating experiment which i have heard about before about rats in a cage with rat park have you heard about this i think this might be something that russell brand talked about where he was talking about the difference between um obsession and addiction Mm. yes they talk about that as well so rat park this experiment was when a scientist or researcher uh put i think it was heroin and cocaine into the water um in a cage of rats and and also water that didn't have a drug in it. And they found, unsurprisingly, that the rats became addicted to the lace water and it led to their deterioration and death. I'm very much truncating and paraphrasing a very interesting and complex experiment. So please, if you're interested in this, don't take my truncated version, go read it up. But the interesting thing is that they created what he called Rat Park, which was sort of rat heaven in this cage with everything that a rat might want with lots of food and lots of distractions and lots of fulfillment and lots of other rats to have rat relationships with and placed those uh, drug-laced waters in that cage and they found that those rats did not become addicted to that water. So 
the kind of very minimized boiled down lesson from that is that if you are satisfied and fulfilled and connected in your life then drugs are less of a risk to you Mm. which I found really interesting Mm. he also goes into the idea of I mean he's just he's got so much research and so much science and so many statistics behind him it's really interesting to hear him ruminating on these things and he says something that he says that I found fascinating is that the because he basically in the war on drugs what he is arguing is that the war on drugs has failed and we've given it a very very good shot but prohibiting drugs it's it's not working and it's causing Mm. more harm than good and he makes a case a very strong argument for the legalization of drugs and he said that the um intrinsic he said that the need in humans to seek an altered state or to seek a state of oblivion is often described as something that's a modern phenomenon that's something that's what we do to cope with the anxieties of modern life he says it's the most ancient and historic mm. inclination to the point where the one culture where there is no evidence of them using substances to alter their states is Inuits. But what they do have is evidence that Inuits starved themselves to try and achieve a head like a yeah. like a head rush or like an altered state. Like yeah. that's how deep this longing goes in humans to, to visit a higher place of consciousness as you know which is a very grandiose way of saying <laughs> feel high basically yeah. I think on the Johan Hari thing of where you were saying earlier you know you don't want to dwell on whether or not he should be allowed to put all of his ideas out there I think it just makes me think of John Ronson and Shane and yes he is a white man so the idea that he's been you know allowed to resurrect professionally would he if he wasn't a yes white man which is a valid question but it has been seven years he has been he has very much held his hands up hasn't he and he did go away and do a monumental amount of research to do some good work like and he's put it all on record he records all his interviews now as evidence to to people in yeah of the validity of his research and interviews in my book he's 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 paid his price he's done his time he'll never fully escape the shame of what he did well that's going to follow him that will tarnish so basically what i'm saying is i'm completely okay to enjoy what he's I have to say I'm still really on the fence about how I feel about it but I did listen to this interview and it has permeated like I haven't been able to stop thinking about the stuff that he said the other thing I have to listen to Joe Bloody aren't I it's it's such a good interview the final thing that I'd like to say about that interview which has haunted me and has made me want to come off social media is he talks about extrinsic versus intrinsic desires so intrinsic desires are a kind of deep internal longing or need to do something for a sense of satisfaction, connection or contentment. So for me, it's sitting and playing the guitar for an hour when no one will ever hear it. It's just that that gives me a kind of sense of peace and calm. It's ringing your friend because you desperately want to speak to them, connect to them, communicate with them, listen to them, speak, like tell your stories to them. Those are intrinsic desires, intrinsically motivated activities. Extrinsic activities are doing things out of obligation or to provoke a response out of people that will make you feel good. So it's posting a hot bikini picture of yourself so everyone will feel jealous. It's 
tweeting about a book that you've read because you want everyone to know that you've read this very clever book. It's going to a birthday drinks of someone you don't want to go to because you're worried that they're going to be angry with you if you don't or you feel some sort of immense obligation. And he said, basically, the more humans now, because of kind of junk values, aesthetic surfacey values that propel us so much, the more extrinsically motivated we are, the like quite astonishingly more likely it is that we will suffer from anxiety or depression and the more intrinsically motivated we are on the whole the happier we are and I know that's like a very very rudimentary thing but hearing it in those terms in that language and in those definitions I was like Jesus Christ I think I completely agree with that I would contend a few of those examples though like as I have to say as well I've just created those examples so that might be incorrect not out of any like this isn't particularly out of a place from my ego because I'm kind of fully willing to accept when it's definitely my ego coming into play but my thing for example when I share books or pieces I've written is that I like sharing the good work of other people like that's just something that I want to do if I read something great I want other people to know what a great job this person has done it's not that I would share it because I want people to know that I've read a lot because it's kind of like yeah it's out there that I read a lot like I don't feel the need to enforce that so I think people would have different ideas about what's intrinsic and what's extrinsic yeah totally and I'm posting a picture black and white no but I think I think to be honest leaving aside particular examples it is as you say it's just actually thinking about your motivation when you do something but then also I would always argue that the extrinsic you know going to someone's drinks you don't really want to go to I think that's really important because I think we've lost a sense of duty in society and when you lose any kind of sense of duty or obligation we then operate in this entirely nihilistic world where people just do what they want when they want and there's no true Totally. Underpinning. So, yeah, anyway. I think it's more I was thinking... I do understand completely what you say, though, and I do I do 100% agree with the psychology of that. I think I was thinking it resonated with me very deeply and very personally, thinking of it in those terms, because I was thinking about specifically my career in the last two years. And, you know, intrinsic desire for me is sitting at a laptop writing a script or a story because I'm desperate to tell it and not really sure where it goes. Extrinsic for me is publicity, um, Mm. admin, um, all these things that, as you said, we can't all live completely propelled by intrinsic desires. That would be a a malfunctioning Mm. society and a very selfish one. But it was just a moment of me really examining like, okay, I have felt very, very anxious for a lot of the time in the last year. And then when I heard those like very clear cut definitions, it was so clear to me. And I suddenly had the vocabulary after listening to that interview of going, oh, I know exactly why that is. And I absolutely understand where you're coming from, because I think both of us um, have a certain completely self-created no one to blame but ourselves we have quite visible um social media accounts which means that it can feel quite exposing when you put your work out there and it can also frame the way your work is written in a way that it wouldn't your work wouldn't ever and also framed. frame your motivations whether you like it or not well that's why i stopped putting my poetry on instagram because it was so i just write it for myself and i'm not mm. sharing it anywhere at the moment because i immediately encountered what I knew would only become a larger frustration that people were messaging saying they liked my insta poetry and I thought it's not insta poetry I've written poetry and I've shared it on the medium of Instagram but I realized that I wasn't happy with the kind of externalization of that and that actually it was better to do it Mm. for those intrinsic reasons Mm. which had led me to write the poetry during my insomnia in the first place yeah so yeah examining your work through that as well I agree is 
especially when you can feel visible and quite exposed actually mm. to steal Livia Sujic's um, book term. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really interesting. I'm going to listen to Joe Rogan. Go listen to it. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts. I will. What else have you been enjoying? Natasha Lunn, friend of the Hilos and editor at Red, sent me a beautiful book by Danny Shapiro and I messaged her to say thank you and I wasn't I'm not familiar with Danny Shapiro and she sent me a piece written by uh, Shapiro in 2016 for the New York Times about um, what it is to be the the writer of multiple memoir and it was one of the most accurate descriptions I've ever read of the experience of writing about your personal life and having it published and I'd actually like to read a section from it here shortly after the publication of my second memoir I was startled to realize that I had become lonely I had been speaking a great deal in bookstores behind podiums on stages I could weave articulate compelling answers in discussion about my books but when it came to my life to that soft pulsing internal backbeat people had stopped asking me questions because they thought they already had the answers but there is a profound difference between what a writer does alone in her room the honing crafting shaping transcending of her own personal history in order to carve out a story that is ultimately a public performance and the human need to quietly share in the most intimate possible way to confess to stutter out thoughts and feelings to be heard and understood Annie Dillard once admonished writers you may not let rip I keep her words close to me when I write from my own life I think perhaps it should be emblazoned on T-shirts and given to first-year MFA students. There is no art in letting rip. When I write a book, I have no interest in telling all the way I absolutely do long to while talking to a close friend. My interest is in telling precisely what the story requires. It is along the knife's edge of this discipline that the story becomes larger, more likely to touch their thread of the universe, Emerson's beautiful phrase. In this way, a writer might spiral ever deeper into one or two themes throughout a lifetime. Theme, after all, being a literary term for obsession, while illuminating something new and electrifying each time. That's just a brilliant writing tip for when you're writing about personal. And it's made me even really think, you know, be like just mega specific in the bits of yourself that you're... Of course. But that's why I find it, you know, I've started to find it quite offensive when people talk to me about my book and they say, oh, was it therapy? It's like, no, of course, this wasn't an exercise of catharsis and therapy. This was a writing exercise. This was a storytelling exercise. You know, writing personally, and this is something that I think is so gendered as well, writing personally is an art form. It's not a woman lifting up her skirt and saying, come have a look. (laughs) But truly, I don't think anyone's saying that about, like, Ted Hughes or, I don't know. It's complete, yeah, no, I think it's totally... um... I think we think when women write personally, they're just, like... It's like they're on bottle number two of rose yeah, with their friends like at the park. Spilling onto the yeah, and I also think that I also found that quite interesting. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't written a memoir, but I've I do quite often write about personal stuff in pieces, and I definitely try and hold back. Like I want there to be a slight tension there, the idea that I'm not giving everything, and and then hearing her say that made me realise how important it is to me that I maintain that tension and how perhaps reading some more of Danny Shapiro's work would help mm. me maintain that, that tension in writing about the person. Totally, and what I'm, I want to be clear, what I'm not saying is I actually find it quite galling when writers write these very personal memoirs and then they turn around to people and say, you don't know me at all. I don't think it works like that. Like, I think when you write personally in any capacity, you are inviting the world in to understand you and know your inner world and your, your day-to-day world. And you can't then hold that against them in, with a sort of weird pride. 
what what I think I found very truthful about this piece is that we need to not minimize the art of women telling their personal stories as it being them just blabbering letting rip yeah letting rip exactly so I can't wait to read that and thank you very much Natasha Lund for introducing me to that fantastic writer another New York Times piece uh, I read was about the Andrea Dworkin revival in a time of Trump so anyone who isn't I'm sure lots of our listeners are aware of who Andrea Dworkin is she was a militant feminist who was often wrongly attributed with saying that all heterosexual sex is rape but she was very radical in her ideology she was anti-porn anti-prostitution commonly known and arguably mistakenly known as a bit of a misandrist she has become a kind of cartoonish and caricatured depiction of what a feminist is and um, I think it's kind of sad, actually, as someone who read her work when I was a teenager and filled with um, fury that I didn't quite understand yet, but I needed some words for. I've always found it slightly galling how the cartoonishness in which she is spoken about minimises the incredibly bold thinking and speaking and writing that she did. Um, so she's kind of fallen out of fate. Like her, her thinking and her writing and her work and her ideology has become sort of unfashionable in feminism in recent years but this new york times article explores how there's been quite a big revival and uh revisiting of her work now to quote the piece so what is it in dworkin's long neglected oeuvre that has suddenly become resonant perhaps it's simply because we're in a moment of crisis when people seeking solutions are dusting off all sorts of radical ideas but i think it's more than that dworkin was engaged as many women today are in a pitched cultural battle over whose experiences and assumptions define our common reality as she wrote of several esteemed male writers in a 1995 preface to intercourse I love the literature these men created, but I will not live my life as if they are real and I am not. Think about everything we were talking about last week, about what we do with the work of these great geniuses that have kind of problematic attitudes to women or, or personal lives. She was writing that in 1995. She was preempting what we do with the work of those men. And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting piece about how the time that we're in now means that we need that kind of urgent conversation around uh, gender and around feminism. How did she get wrongly attributed for saying that all sex between heterosexual couples was rape? I think I think it was that she said things that were in that kind of theme park, but she never specifically said those words. But obviously now that's all that she's remembered for is that she said those words. And her writing is much more nuanced than that um mm. and reading this article has made me want to revisit intercourse which as i said i read when i was about 14 but i probably had no bloody clue <laughs> what it was all about no I'm, i haven't ever read um i'd heard of her but i haven't any read ever read a lot of her work so i would um love to read that and it sounds as you say like she's just it's all the kind of stuff that's now mm. it's the now 23 and, and, years and 24 years later and f- like fury is what we need right now like Mm. fury is good Mm. and finally so i just realized all my reading this week is the new york times finally uh i enjoyed a 2012 new york times piece called do the jews own anxiety by daniel smith and it begins with um he kind of paints a picture of he and his friends having dinner together and they talk about who would form a super team of neuroses. And they realise that every member that they would put in this almost like 
super band would, would be Jewish. And uh, that leads on to him questioning why that is and examines the trope of the nervous Jewish man, which is so common in art. He explores it in the piece Fiddler on the Roof, Philip Roth's books, obviously Woody Allen does it very famously. And he examines its roots, why it has mutated into this kind of unusual badge of intellect, as well as having perhaps anti-Semitic semantic roots. He says, if anxiety is so painful, why celebrate it? Jewishly speaking, there are, I think, two reasons, or actually two and a half. First, the purveyors of the neurotic Jew figure recognise, they feel in their bones, that Jewish anxiety isn't a genetic affliction or even so much a consequence of histrionic parenting as it is the non-transferable cost of being born Jewish. As a Jew born since, say, AD 200, you are forced to live in a world in which you are, for perplexing, unfathomable reasons, not only the object of a widespread psychotic rage, but also, as the very consequence of that rage, urged and expected to associate all the more strongly with your heritage. Indeed, you are urged and expected to act as a kind of personal repository for nearly 6,000 years of collective memory and as a bearer of an entire people's hopes for surviving into the limitless future. You don't want to be anxious, you don't want to be neurotic, tough, you were born into anxiety. Second, celebrating anxiety exhibits pride. Anti-Semites stereotype Jews as hopelessly headbound and urbanised, lacking in old-fashioned pastoral virility. And a lot of Jews spend a lot of time and energy trying to put the lie to that stereotype. But for centuries, being Jewish has also meant a willingness to question, discuss, scrutinise, interpret, dissect and argue over every last niggling aspect of human existence. Endless mind-numbing exegesis is the soul of the Jewish religion. That's very interesting. It's really interesting. And the half that he goes into, which I didn't uh, quote there, is he says, you know, neuroses, when you really distill what it is, is a sort of hyper-questioning analysis and intellectualism, which is why it can come with its kind of own strange pride. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Support for the Hilo comes from my long-held favourite, the luxury professional hair care brand, Kerastase. That isn't empty hyperbole. My hair was dry and frazzled thanks to years of hair colouring and straightening and I was constantly dousing it in serum. And then I discovered Kerastase in my early 20s and their masks honestly changed my hair's life. Happily for me, there's a whole new raft of products to let my hair live its best life. Blonde Absolute is a new in-salon and at-home hair care range dedicated to blonde hair. As Pandora alludes to, when you have ahem, natural blonde hair like us, there are two essentials, repair to prevent dryness and tone neutralisation to prevent brassiness. With Blonde Absolute, there is no need to compromise. It removes unwanted brassiness while strengthening and hydrating the hair, leaving it feeling soft and looking shiny. That is no mean feat when you colour your hair. 
This customisable hair care range cares for all types of blondes, from sun-kissed highlights to balayage to all-over icy white tones. God, I love the word balayage. So do I. Visit kerastars.co.uk for exclusive offers to celebrate the launch of new Blonde Absolute, available for a limited time only. Thank you very much to our hair's friend for life, Kerastars. Today we have an author special for you. We haven't had one of those for a little while and we are thrilled to have Candice Carty-Williams, author of her first novel, the soon-to-be-published Queenie, joining us today. Candice is a senior marketing executive at Vintage Publishing, a Penguin Right Now mentor and in 2016 she created and launched the Guardian and Fourth Estate BAME Short Story Prize, which aims to find, champion and celebrate underrepresented writers. She has written for ID, Refinery29 and The Guardian and was mentored herself by the best-selling Jojo Moyes, who selected Candice for her writer's scheme, saying that she knew there was something special about her. Welcome to the studio, Candice. Thank you. We both absolutely adored Queenie. We were so excited to have you on and yeah, to talk to say, about this brilliant book. We both just gobbled it um, in the last week and kept texting each other about <laughs> it. It's so brilliant. Which is out on April the 11th. So it gives some time to our listeners at home to pre-order. In your own words, Candice, can you give us a short synopsis of Queenie? Uh, so Queenie is about a young black woman living in South London and desperately trying to navigate the world that is working and relationships and politics while also coming from this family who kind of are the opposite of the things that she's aspiring to be. Um, and Queenie is kind of holding on to this one relationship that she thinks is going to make her acceptable and make her right and make her good. But when that kind of crumbles away she makes some really bad and reckless decisions that kind of keep catching up with her as the book goes along. Candice, I was particularly interested that you wrote this from inside the publishing world, which means you inevitably know about form and commercial appeal and all sorts of things that outside of it you just wouldn't necessarily know. That also meant that you knew about the gaps in the market. How did that feed into Queenie's story? How much of it was, this is a story I'm not seeing being told? And how much was it, I'm just burning to write the story? Or was it sort of a combination of the knowledge that you had? So it was a combination of the two. So I, sh- I started the Short Story Prize when I was 23 because I was, I'd been working in publishing for about a year and I was like, where are these stories? I mean, I enjoyed working on what I was working on, but I think the main book by a person of colour, a woman of colour I was working on, was um, Americana by Chiamanda Ngozi Adichie. And just the ratio of, of that didn't seem right mm. to me. And so I was like, okay, what can we do to make this landscape more representative? Because I just believe that people should always be heard because we have so many stories to tell within us. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, everyone contains multitudes. So there are so many... Um, you know, there are so many stories that different groups of people should be telling. Yes. Um, And so I started the Short Story Prize and then I was like, great, there are some great things coming from this, but things aren't moving fast enough. So what can I do to contribute to this? Um, And I have always loved books. I've always loved reading. And I was like, I'm going to just have to do it myself. I love that. You weren't seeing what you... God, if only everyone was that can-do. Yeah, not I know. Not seeing it that. I'm just going to do it myself. Totally. I've got a full-time job, but I'm just going to do it myself. And not only did you just do it, but you did it really fucking well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Queenie is a complex character captured by the contradictions written on the back of this book jacket. 
I'm strong, I'm struggling, I'm expressive, I'm aggressive. I think he's the one. I know he's not. I like it that way. I can't say no. I'm not black enough. I'm too black. I have best friends, but I'm alone in this. I am enough. Am I? So as you touched on, kind of she contains multitudes within herself. How did you come to create that character? So I've grown up reading lots and lots of, I guess, flawed characters or characters who can't take themselves too seriously. Mm. So I remember the first books that I loved and read over and over again were the Georgia Nicholson books by Louise Renison, who sadly passed away. Um, and those books, starting with Anger Songs and Full Frontal Snogging, yeah. it was just mm. amazing because it was a girl who was like, I am quite stupid and <laughs> I tell stupid jokes and I have a really big nose and boys don't fancy me, but I fancy loads of them. And this is going to be what this is what's going to happen. And I love that because she was just so stupid and her friends were stupid <laughs> and they had like funny group names and dances and silly ways of doing things and and like scales for like rating their faces and their bodies and it was just sweet and silly and I just thought if you can create a character like that that can just do what they want to do and talk about when they want to talk about and not take themselves seriously then that's all you can do to- I just want to make people laugh and yeah. I remember how I felt when I read those books and those books might not have had me in mind because obviously we're growing up very different lives but I definitely saw myself and felt myself in them just because she could be silly and she could let herself go And also to have the confidence when you're creating that young woman Mm. to know that she can be silly and self-involved and care about shit that doesn't Mm. matter (laughs) and be careless with her heart and other people's hearts. But also that not negate her her deep baseline goodness. Mm. Because I think that's the thing that we're always so worried about, isn't it, when we're presenting ourselves to the world, particularly in this age, that showing any sort of contradiction or flaw somehow Mm. shows poor morality. I think it's I think she also is I mean Queenie is really kind she's Mm. really kind but also like it's that thing when you have a breakup and you're so involved in it and you know that there's so much stuff going on in the world but you're still just kind of like yeah but my heart is breaking and I guess like that is her kindness right she's knowing that she has this heart that she wants to kind of protect and look after Mm. Um, and also she has people in her life that she loves and you know, this group of friends that she has who are called the Corgis. She does love all of those people so much, but at the moment it's about her. That's mm. the thing, right, I guess. She's yeah, just like, cute. but for now it's me. Guys, focus on me. But, you know, every group of friends has, has had, like, I certainly have had that moment with my friends where it's like, I care very deeply about all of your lives and everything, but right now mine is the most important. <laughs> but I think the book really excels at what you were saying and what Dolly touched on about, you know, having really weighty things in your life um but also really caring about like the silliness and the kind of minutiae of what it's like to be a young woman and your book really reminded me of um holly bourne's how do you Mm. like me now in the way we were both dolly and i were both floored by this really addictively readable but also like sledgehammer of truths the way that she presented so many things very cleverly and um and i think that's something you do as well presenting kind of weighty emotional psychological and political truths about what it is to be a woman about what it is to be a young black woman um but in a way that is never takes away from how funny it is how it's just that it's that mix that you should be allowed to do but as you say dolly we're so used to things being so binary i mean that's Mm. something that I've encountered in my life it's something we've all encountered this idea of you having to be one thing and you do that so well in the book so 
Queenie is the only black woman on the newspaper where she works. She gets called urban by her editor just because she's mm. black and lives in Brixton. And she says to her friend, am I urban? And her friend's like, no, you're definitely not urban. <laughs> you know, she's, she's repeatedly reduced to just a great ass. And at one point, this is one of my favourite bits, Queenie makes a list of all the people who can touch her hair. One, me. Two, my hairdresser. Three, that's it. <laughs> That's the whole list. <laughs> That's the whole list. Yeah. Um, I think it's just ain't, so much of this comes from, I guess, some of the things that I've experienced and the stories that I've heard and the people that I've grown up with, and especially my family, and also just going to school and going to university around these groups of, well, with these groups of people. I have often been the only black person, and that has, it's only taken, it's taken me a really long time to realise that it was really taxing and really affecting because you're always trying to police yourself. And for a really long time, I tried to assimilate and I really liked when people would say to me, oh, we don't see you as black, don't worry. And that's crazy because that's like, Mm. you know, that's not all of my identity, but like that's me in the world and that's where I come from. And for me to kind of be complicit in this erasure of myself, it's really sad. for doing it. Right? It's really, really sad. I remember reading that in Efwa's book, who you um, thank in your acknowledgements, sent you as one of your corgis. I remember that was something I found really upsetting when I read when she said at her school she remembers at one point the girls say don't worry yeah. Ethel, we we don't see you yeah. Carla we don't see you as black yeah and you kind of have to I think that's the thing that I've been realizing and telling people is that you know seeing me as black is fine like yeah. it's and some people are kind of like are we allowed to say black it's, yeah, like, it's not upsetting yeah, it's the actuality um but it's kind of like you know if you say like come and stay with me but I've, I've catered for you and I get there and the shampoo doesn't work for me then it's kind of like but in that instance you would have had to realize that I'm different you know so it's mm. kind of like it's fine that there is difference you don't have to point it out it doesn't have to be a marker but you know it's there and it's okay mm. The tireless subjectification of Queenie's body and the constant reference to the colour of her skin by men who fetishise her, be it men on dating apps or the men that she meets in day-to-day life, is both uncomfortable and often uh, quite graphic. Was this something... Because I felt by the end of it, I felt so frustrated on behalf of Queenie because you're walking around with her for these however many pages... Was that something that you wanted to communicate, that kind of tirelessness? Did you want us to feel kind of exhausted and confronted by this reality? I think so, because I... So one of the things that was in my head when I was writing this was a few years ago, I was on OkCupid and one of my best friends, who is white, very beautiful, she was on Happen and we realised that we were talking to the same person. And... We didn't care about that. That was fine. That like we just, you know, where we, you know, we share screen grabs. We share that. So mm. it wasn't like a thing. Mm. Um, but she showed me what he was saying to her, and his opening to her was, "Hi, my name is." <laughs> I told this story before, and I accidentally said his real name, so I'm not going to say it. So <laughs> let's say his name is Carl. Hi, my name is Carl. Um, I would love to meet up with you sometime. Like I've seen your profile; it's great. Like I work with kids. Like I, I get what you're doing. I love it. And to me, he said. Hi, how would you feel about taking a day off work so I can fuck you? Oh my god! I can't believe that. So you've li- and you really you've parlayed that into the that, that yeah exactly. But that's Gosh. that's like that's the actuality of it. So I don't really. So I'm quite wary of apps just because they're really they're like a different. Level you don't of want grinding. to take a day off work. <laughs> no, I haven't got the time. <laughs> sorry. I haven't the time. Um, but I was so actually this weekend. I so I god, I went so I went I was like my friend was like no go on Hinge. I was talking to someone on Hinge and he kept calling me an ebony queen 
And it was like, I'm not like Stevie no. Wonder to your Paul McCartney. Like, I don't know what is this? Like, it was yeah. so, but this is the stuff that like, even now that I'm like more able to understand what's going on, it still, it still happens. It still happens. And so like, it's kind of like, I'm just gonna just leave it to real life. Just because the way that people think they can talk to you is kind of mad. And if yeah. me yeah, and a few of my, me and a few of my black friends, we kind of have a look and we, again, we share like what people are saying to us. And it is like, really commonplace it's just kind of like the aim is to like have sex with this like ebony queen and then that's kind of it like dates are not an option like meeting up is not really an option it's like when are you free for me and that's horrible that has a real effect on you know your self-esteem and how you feel about sex and how you feel about uh, the opposite sex queenie is she's actually and this is what's really sad and she, without giving too much away, she does come to an awareness about the own, like the role that she plays in her own narrative. But it's like, and this is frustrating to read as a reader, mm. if she was just being taken along by other people's sexual desires, there was like not very much agency in a no. lot of her decision making when she was kind of having a, you know, a, a breakdown of sorts. And that it's lovely when she regains her power and she regains that sense of, um, you know, all of these men who have sort of chased her and then dismissed of her whilst she wasn't really ever sure if she really liked them that yeah. much and the fact they, they've sort of you know played this really dramatic arc and she's just being like this kind of quite low ebb almost consistently through it one of my <laughs> favorite moments in the book as someone who's been on dating apps for the best part of a decade <laughs> is the gentleman so. who queenie identifies as um his preference age preference is 18 to 99 <laughs> <laughs> and she says what a discerning young man <laughs> <laughs> there's there's one bit which I found incredibly striking when Queenie has to explain to her colleagues about Black Lives Matter and one man says, you know, all lives matter and she's and she's so shocked that he could even think that she thinks that they do not and Queenie herself is constantly trying to pitch stories to her editor which just aren't seen as important enough and you know go and do another gallery of the best black dresses her editor says and you end your acknowledgements with the hashtag black lives matter so they are literally the last words of your book was there an element of Queenie challenging some of the frustrations that you have encountered with the response to the black lives matter movement Absolutely. So, I mean, when... So, obviously, so much of that stuff is happening in the US, but it's so effective. It's, like, very uniquely affecting to so many of us here because we feel powerless because mm-hmm. we have a different institution here. We don't have the same type of thing, but we see it all and obviously we want it to stop just because the level of injustice is so obscene and so horrific and you're kind of these people you know I'm not related so I don't know them but it's still just kind of like you're my people I see myself in you if I have a son or a daughter they're going to be you so you know it's kind of like you're all ex- we're all extensions of, of each other and just it's like to see someone just slain and nothing comes from it is absolutely appalling and so that really Black Lives Matter is something that really really matters to me just because you know you watch these I remember being at work one day and there had there had been two killings at the hands of police on the news, and I just stood in the kitchen and I was just crying while there was while it was sort of rolling on the news. And my colleagues who were all white, they just walked past. They were just walking past me, mm. and they weren't even looking at the screen. Like they didn't. It didn't. Mm. They didn't. They weren't looking at me to see why I was crying, and they weren't looking at seeing what the cause was. And I was just like, my heart is breaking for all of these people. It's like you know. And the way that, you know, the positioning and the way these people are, you know, seen as monsters or Mm. animals. 
you know, these are these are our, and I, my people. You get, I mean, you get insight into it in the media every day, of course, but particularly in the weight that stories were told. So I was really interested this weekend by there was a lot of coverage of that actor from Empire, mm. Jussie Smollett, yeah. who had staged, it was an extraordinary story, he'd staged like a fake racist attack on him, you know, to bring attention to some project he was on anyway odd thing to do sure but it got so many more articles on it than actual than actual people who had been yeah so the the kind of injustice of him co-opting something which obviously is the rarity the amount of black hollywood stars faking Mm. racist attacks are obviously a real rarity Mm. whereas um young black people or black people being killed for no justifiable reason is not the rarity but the weighting of the way those stories Mm. was told is something you see Time and time again, I think. I think also with that, it was that so much stuff that wasn't actually true or, or, you know, that wasn't actually verified was being released. And so there were loads of things they were saying, like, you know, so he paid his trainers to do this. And then it's like three three days later, it's like, oh, no, actually, he was paying them for training. And it was like, well, you know, like, but all of these things are being released as fact. And so, Mm. you know, I do not condone anything that he's done. I think it's really horrific. And I think it really takes away from the... If he has done it, I think it really takes away from the... Of course it does. The, the things yeah. that are really happening and the, the attacks, are, you know, obviously, but um, the but, way that it, the reportage was really shocking and it was really fueling a lot of fires mm, all of the time. Totally. It was incredible to see. Yeah, totally. And it's so it's it's so depressing to read that because you think, oh, you know, I understand you thought this was a story worth covering, but oh God, you know, the, mm-hmm. that will keep fires going for ages. And if, as you say, those those facts are not verified, but yeah, no, that that the, the weighting of it is is mad. Queenie is also incredibly funny. The <laughs> conversations between her and her grandparents, who were both so incredibly bossy, <laughs> are completely hilarious. Even And actually, it's funniest during Queenie's darkest hours, mm. you know, when she's saying to her grandmother, I need to go and I need to talk to someone. And her grandmother's going, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. No, you don't. We don't do psychotherapy. Um, how, how hard is it to write funny, particularly when your character is in such pain? So I think... When I was growing up, I mean, in our family, I always joke, no one no one finds it funny, but I always joke that whenever physically we're all just really mentally ill because we basically are all anxious or depressed and no one talks about it. Right. And I think the way of getting through all these things is to make jokes all the time. And so this is what I naturally do when I'm feeling really... And the same with my... I watch my mum do it and my aunts do it and my grandparents do it. And so making jokes through pain is kind of the way that I deal with things and the way that we always have dealt with things. But... The grandparents stuff was really... I really enjoyed writing it because my grandparents, they're not the same as that. My grandma is like my number one and she's like, if you need anything, it's yours. You know, so I'm so spoiled like by her. My granddad is always like, you two get on with what you're doing. I'm not interested (laughs) at all. He barely speaks. Um, And so writing the... I really liked writing the corgi scenes. Like I found that you shouldn't laugh at your own work, but I always found those really funny when I was going back to, when I was like reading back and having supervisions, I was always like, "That's pretty funny." Darcy's yeah, I think funny. you're allowed to laugh at your own work <laughs> in the privacy of your desk. <laughs> I, thought Darcy, I thought Darcy was just adorable as well because it was, she was just so earnest and she mm. didn't always get it right. Yeah. But God, you know, she loved Queenie more than anyone, and that's why she was so, they all, so. All of those, all of the corgis were amazing, and they're all parts of Queenie, and they all inform her and who she is. And Darcy, their friendship is. 
I think my favourite one, even though it's not the one... So, you know, obviously, Cheske, she's been her friend since school, so yeah. like her longest friend. And then, like, you know, Cassandra is her friend at university. And when you're at university and you're kind of alone in this new world, the people that you latch onto when you're there, they're really important to you. But with Dart, I think because she's there every day, mm. I think that's why their, their bond is so close. And also just because Darcy, for Queenie, is kind of like, wow, I never thought I'd have a friend like you who is so different to me, but you kind of understand what I'm going through and you're open to what I'm going through and that's an amazing thing and something that I really loved about the relationships with her corgis is as you said each of these three friends represent a sort of part of her story but you're not afraid of exploring how those relationships are complex particularly Mm. in their cultural differences and at times disconnected particularly with Cassandra who despite being a minority herself she's Jewish she often doesn't understand Queenie's experiences Mm. And through flashback as well, we see that this was a problem in her last relationship with Tom. Did you did you want to kind of explore and understand how these microaggressions and this kind of disconnection can happen even in the most loving of relationships? Absolutely. And I think friendships are so complex, right? Like friendships are... My friends, I think... I'm, a, I'm terrible at relationships, but my friends, they're my great loves. And That's I think sometimes... Exactly. <laughs> and I think sometimes they get... The, they get my friends always get the best of me but they often get the worst and I think that the arguments that you have and also just the disconnect in so many things and you know you are coming at things from different places and with your friends you know we don't have to love each other we don't have to spend time with each other and so lots of adjustments need to be made when you're going through these things and navigating these things because you are different people um, and so exploring that there is so much difference in people and how that can come to create conflict is really important to me because I mean we all have that and I really just wanted to sum up how friendships are just as important as relationships in your life and how again neither of these things will be smooth and especially if you're dealing with yourself and not knowing who you are and I guess you're coming into your understanding of what it means to be a young woman um, things are going to be sticky. Mm. I think that's why I really loved the relationship between um Queenie and Cheska as well is because she's really Cheska's really um open and um <laughs> shameless about her kind of um parameters as a friend mm. so when Queenie's obviously not doing very well you've you've got you know Darcy who's like take all the time you need and Cheska's like no this is not my mm-hmm. this is not my remit I don't do emotion mm-hmm. like Hope you're all right. Yeah, you know she's an amazing. She's an ama- <laughs> but she's an amazing friend in a yeah. ton of other ways, and she's also hilarious. I'd say probably the the funniest yeah. character. She's There's this amazing character. bit as well where she's like, Queenie, how did you not know that what was going on in Brixton? She's like, why should I know what's going on in Brixton? She's like, you're, she's like, you're from the Caribbean. Brixton is your thing. I'm Ugandan. I know Peckham. Like, these, are our, these are our areas. Don't let me down. Um, and I think that was amazing because I think Cheska teaches her or you see her teaching her a lot about her identity and not to be ashamed of parts of her identity. And then with Darcy, you've got someone that's really dedicated to Queenie's kind of emotional core. And so they play different roles in friendship to her. And it's it's just amazing to see that really. Um, I don't think that we, and it's something that Dolly said to me before, which I have found really, really important, is that, you know, we Queenie is actually very understanding of her friend's limitations. You know, you actually never see her questioning why one friend does one thing mm. and another doesn't and I actually thought that was a really that was a great lesson to take away amidst all the other ones as well I think I think you need to understand also I guess I'm a real fan and proponent of therapy 
And I think that there are some things that you can tell your friends, but also you need to be really aware that you're not offloading because you just do not know what someone's going through. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I know that in my friendship groups and circles, I'm the strong friend. And so people are like, at least I'm going to call you up and tell you what's happened to me today. And sometimes I'm on the phone for two hours just going, okay, yeah, oh God, oh yeah, that's awful. Oh, oh no, I'm so, you know. And those things are really, really taxing on you. And I just thought Mm. like, you know, this needs to be something that is noted because even the people who seem the strongest, they're not. Like, you know, they can endure things and they're resilient, but that's not the same as strength. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Yeah, and and, and Queenie does do that. She says, I'm going to go off grid Mm. for a while and transport myself out. And I spit... In one way, you could maybe read that as, but, you know, where are her friends? But actually, her friends had, they, I love the way you wrote that, her friends had done everything they could. Mm. So then that had to be her, mm. you know? They were really worried about her. They told her they were worried about her. But ultimately, they can't, they couldn't change any of the mm. patterns. I'm really sorry to relate this back to Sex in the City, but there's that brilliant please, Sex in the City please. episode. You know, when it's like, I think it's series two, and she's been talking about big so much. Yeah. And then they stage an intervention, and they take her to a therapist, and they're like, it's the blind yeah. leading the blind. We've got, we're, we're fucking up so much with men. We've sort of reached the end of our wisdom, and we've got nothing more to give you. So when I was writing it, I guess I didn't, I couldn't plan anything. I'm not a good planner. I just sit, and I just think about how people are because I spend a lot of time I'm an introvert so I spend a lot of time watching people and listening I really I'm not naturally loud or want to be looked at ever um and so I just kind of let that guide me and I let human nature guide me when I was writing and that's a lovely way of putting it well it was just it was just I guess easy thing and I guess her going off grid and her friends understanding that was just kind of like that is how naturally this would go so that's why I wrote it I wrote it in the most naturalistic way I think of just being like well how would a person going through this be and what would her friends be to her in that time and I think sometimes you know as we know sometimes our friends have to be like I'm opting out or sometimes we have to be like peace like I'm gone for like two weeks just give me you know like don't text Mm. me Mm. The book is unflinchingly honest and refreshingly non-puritanical and, non- and non-judgmental in how it tells stories of sexuality and mm-hmm. shame and neuroses and anxieties and coping mechanisms and battles with self-esteem. It will be radically reassuring and hugely comforting to many. Was there anything like this available to you when you were a younger woman that, that provided that kind of solace? Not really. And that's why I want to... I mean, they're worth it. So, like, I mean, Bridget Jones's diary is always going to be one of my huge shout outs just because I... Reading that, I guess, I remember I stole a copy from my aunt's shelf when I was too young, I think. <laughs> I did the same. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, to this day, it's on my shelf. And it's been signed now by Helen Fielding. Um, but I remember reading that and thinking, like, oh, this is a woman who's not perfect. This is amazing. This is a woman who's making loads of mistakes and there are two men in her life and they're not neither of them are great like that's clearly that's clearly there um and so I think that's one of the things that I read when I was younger but she wasn't speaking directly to me I mean like she's like middle class she's blonde she she has blue eyes she's you know she has these amazing parents who live in the suburbs and that's really you know that's different from me but I could still find myself in her which was really important um and because of that I called Queenie's best friend Darcy I guess just because you know that is a saviour yeah so there is like a saviour in Bridget Jones's diary and I guess like Queenie's saviours are different they're not men I also um loved Queenie's New Year's resolutions (laughs) which did feel like a really nice sort of nod to to 
to Bridget yeah. Jones. Yeah, they, it does, doesn't it? Because they're long and there's lots of parentheses yeah. and caveats. <laughs> because that does... I mean, I find certainly as a woman who writes mainly in the first person, mm. it has seeped into the bones of my of my sentences. Yes. Yeah. You know, her sentences. Sure as well. I think the only things that I don't... The, I mean, I'm, I remember reading it, and when she talks about weight a lot, I was like, I'm not interested in that yeah. because I, I guess it's just it's just not something that I'm interested in generally. Um, and I think also I didn't want to ever sort of prolong that or like bring that forward into now because I just was like kind of like we'll leave that there and it matters. Mm, mm. um, but I, I think that was a real product of its time. Yeah, actually, absolutely. I don't. I really don't feel like if she was writing it now because she seemed quite forward thinking with yeah. some things I don't yeah I don't and especially because her weight is like nice oh you're tired you're just like at worst yeah. <laughs> it's just like bad day today but, but you know, that's, that's something I really loved about Queenie I remember listening to an interview with Lena Dunham where she was talking about Hannah Horvath creating mm. Hannah Horvath and she said it was really important to her that Hannah Horvath wasn't super slim mm. but that she was so anxious about so many things yes other than her weight and actually we only find out really about Queen like Queenie doesn't talk about the way she looks a lot like the way she talks about how she looks as part of other stories and you Mm. actually find out about her body through how other people respond to it like there's a bit where Addie's furious furious it's quite you know it's quite a hilarious scene and Addie as well even that sex scene is is, you know hilarious and so unsexy and you know Addie's wife being like oh I found these size 16 knickers in your glove compartment or something and he's like no it's my friend you don't you know you don't you wouldn't know what clothing size Queenie was unless it was mm. part of someone else's story and, she, and I you don't feel like she feels any sort of shame or embarrassment over no, it no well when she well, when she loses weight and um, Jean in the office says you looked better before and she says I think I looked better before Jean mm. but I love that you didn't her, her weight is something that other people and this again I think is where your storytelling was so powerful and reminded me of Holly's is because you told the story so much more effectively through other people making reference to the way she looked like Queenie wasn't wanting to move through the world talking constantly about the size of her bum or her boobs mm. or, or her underwear or anything like that it was it was other people forcing that on her that I, I thought was really powerful I, thank you I guess it really is about her and her identity in this place so I guess like growing up in the western world I guess she's always kind of subject to what people are saying about Mm. her and so what time really has she had to think about herself because you know I think black women's bodies have always been dictated so they're sexual or you know you have like the mammy figure so like gone with the wind you have that like you know like really like heaving bosom that soft Mm. stomach for comfort Um, and so I think when or you've got like the hot top there's always a well exactly and so I think, yeah, it's about, I guess she's always seeing herself through other people's lenses. And that is some, so how can she, you know, she has so much going on. How can she ever think about what she looks like when it's always being told by someone else mm. is the thing. But also, you know, she doesn't really, she has enough on her plate tomorrow, yeah. you know, mm, I think. Mm. Yeah. And I have to say, that's what's kind of shocking though, because as you say, she has so much on her plate that some of these um, like really insulting, devastating uh, comments just wash over her because she's had, and... And that I, I learned a lot from that. To be honest, it was it was really great to just reading Queenie to see the book, to see the world through her eyes, and see quite how much didn't even touch the sides with her anymore because of how many other things she was mm. worrying about. That these really offensive comments were just like whew, because they were just so part of so many other. Well, I think that I myself, when people are like, oh, trolls, I'm like, I honestly just turn the phone over. Like, I just, there are things that in my life, like, you know, I always say it's kind of dark, but like, 
no one can really insult me that much because my family have said much worse to me. Like I have a group of aunts who are really awful. They're really funny about my relationship with my nan. They're really jealous. They're jealous that I'm the favourite, but that's what it is. I'm never going to give it up. Um, <laughs> and so because of that, you know, I just, I think, and you know, that is also just the way of the world. You're, when you're told that you're nothing and when you don't see yourself and you feel invisible, you're kind of like, well, all of these insults, they don't really hit because... There's nothing to hear if if that's what if that's what we're seen as, you know, just we're kind of seen as nothing. And so that's kind of where that came from. You know, that really came from my experience of just kind of being like, Well, how much how much am I how how much do people care, you know, when I'm mm. you know, so that's that. I think, you know, I know that when I when I'm out of the house and I don't have to do anything where I have to be presentable, I'm always in a tracksuit. And I just think when people look at me, they will never, ever think like, oh, she may be, maybe she's an author, maybe she works in book publishing for like one of the biggest publishing houses in the UK. Like people don't because they kind of, when you're a black woman, you're kind of like, people just, they, they will not, in my experience, take the time to get to understand the person that you are. And I've just had this where people, like, you know, lots of people, I'm quite well spoken. And lots of people, when they imitate what I've said, they do it in a sort of urban voice. And it's kind of like, that's just you deciding who I am, yeah. even though you're talking yeah. to and listening to me. I have it. Sometimes friends accidentally like slip up and if I say something, they'll they'll like mirror it back in that way. And I'm like, so I said that, you know, and that is just kind of how it is. It's kind of like, I'm always seen as what you've decided is yeah. how I kind of feel. And so I this think is the about that. example of that in the book was Ted, actually. He, to oh, me, was just the I most... I've known him so many turns. But I was, I was so furious. <laughs> and when Queenie just accepted, I wanted to... Sorry, I don't want to give away too much, but I wanted to be like, show her the emails. Like, show where he walks you to. I wanted to get in there and show. You know, I know in the end, Gina says, you know, whatever. Mm. I'm sorry, but God, <laughs> God, I couldn't believe that. Candice, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Queenie. Um, we could not be more certain that Queenie will be cemented into the canon of famous female protagonists, that the book will be a roaring success and that you will go on to do fabulous work both as a writer and in the publishing industry. Thank you for coming on to talk with us. And we wondered if you'd be able to read us out a short excerpt before you go. Yes, I will. Okay, so for context, Queenie is in church with her family. She's been dragged to Midnight Mass um, because that is one of her grandmother's requirements, generally. Um, And this is the point of the novel where things have gone really topsy-turvy and Queenie needs a break. She needs a big break. I ignored my grandmother and zoned out for the hour, conjuring up a frame-by-frame imagining of what Christmas would have been like with Tom this year. I looked up to the ornate church ceiling. I closed my eyes and tried out a little prayer. Dear Lord, I started in my head. I know that I don't pray to you often, or really ever, but I just wanted to ask, please, if you do exist, could things be a bit more smooth sailing from now on? I know that maybe I don't really deserve your pity or your mercy, but I'm really having a bad time and I don't know what to do. Maybe I could just have some clarity? I squeezed my eyes tightly. Why don't we just get Tom to text me and tell me that he wants to see me? That's an easy request. It's not like I'm asking for him back immediately. I understand that these things, they take time. I pause to think if there's anything else I should add. And eventually, if Tom does or doesn't love me again, can I maybe just be a bit happy? I feel like I was born miserable and never given reason to change that. Oh, and I am sorry for all of the casual sex, so please forgive me for that also, I prayed. I know that it's awful and against everything Catholics stand for, but... Ow! I yelped as my grandmother pinched my arm with her bony fingers. 
Don't go to sleep, she growled. The priest looked right over at us. I wasn't, I whispered. I was deep in prayer. (laughs) Thank you so much, Candice. We loved Queenie, both the girl and the book. Queenie is published by Trapeze and is out on the 11th of April. Thank you very much to everyone who's listened to the High Low. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts. Thank you so much to Candice for coming on to talk about Queenie. You can email the High Low at thehighlowshow at gmail.com and you can tweet us at the High Low Show. And we look forward to seeing some of you on Friday at our live record. Bye. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.